Today's scripture lesson is an excerpt from the Sermon on the Mount as found in the Gospel according to Matthew. Here, Jesus offers guidance to his friends, and as we continue our series on making space for God, we listen in to the advice that Jesus gives and how this guidance might apply to our lives as well from Matthew chapter 6. Therefore, I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And can any of you, by worrying, add a single hour to your span of life? And why do you worry about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon, in all his glory, was not clothed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is alive today and tomorrow thrown into the oven, will God not more, much more clothe you, you of little faith? Therefore, do not worry, saying, What will we eat? What will we drink? What will we wear? For it is the Gentiles who strive for all these things, and indeed your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. But strive first for the kingdom of God, and God's righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. So do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will bring worries of its own. Today's trouble is enough for today. May God bless this reading to our understanding. One in five. One in five, that's how many of us adults live with an anxiety disorder. One in five. The American Psychological Association has revised its recommendations and it is now recommending that all adults under the age of 65 and all kids between the ages of 8 and 18 be screened for anxiety disorders. Now often we blame this anxiety that seems to be so prevalent among us on the modern age. We say things like, oh, our kids, they face so much pressure from social media. They see on social media the latest fads and they have to have them and they struggle with FOMO, the fear of missing out. And we adults struggle too. We feel the constant demand of being on call for work 24-7 while juggling the responsibilities of coaching little Sarah's soccer team and we didn't even know we had been voluntold that we would be the soccer coach. And in between, we have to remember to drive and pick up grandma's prescriptions. And even if none of that brings you anxiety, because your particular life is picture perfect, still all of us are, are bombarded each day with the broader worries in our society. How is it, we ask, that we can live in a land of plenty and prosperity, and yet we know that hunger plagues families here in our own city? How is it, we ask, that we live in the land of the free and the home of the brave, but we see on the news at night that presidential candidates are asked about the possibility of a civil war? There is plenty. 
to make us anxious. And so if you're anxious, you're not alone. And some anxiety is good for us, at least according to the mental health professionals who tell us that if you have a big exam this week, a big test, or a big job interview this week, that a little bit of anxiety will help you prepare better for this exam or this interview, and you'll do even better on it. So anxiety is that force among us that alerts us danger is up ahead. So wear your seatbelt, save for retirement. A little anxiety is good for us. But this anxiety among us is not new. It's not a modern problem. Jesus talks about it in the Bible. In these brief nine verses that we just heard, five times Jesus tells them, don't worry. Why are you worrying? Quit worrying. And then Jesus gives some advice. Don't worry about what you will eat, about what you will drink, about what you will wear, which tells us, of course, that the people who were hearing Jesus' words were incredibly worried about all of those things. Because in the ancient day, most of the people, more than 90% of the people, lived well below the poverty line. And if the crops failed, their children wouldn't have enough to eat. And the Holy Land is a desert. And so, of course, they worry about what they will drink. You could faint on the way to the well in the hot sun when you're going with an empty bucket to draw water. And sometimes they didn't even have the basic necessities of life, like shoes to wear on the hot sand on the way to the well, or enough fuel to burn in their homes to stay warm in the winter, or to cook their bread over the oven. They are not like us. They are not reading the designer clothing catalogs and ordering HelloFresh meals. They are anxious about their very survival. So, what antidote to anxiety might Jesus offer them? Jesus came and walked among us on this earth so that Jesus would know what our lives are like, including the real anxieties that all of us face. The garden variety anxieties, like will little Susie make it to the bus stop on time? And the great big intense anxiety like, is this just a little memory loss or could this mean Alzheimer's? What is the answer that Jesus gives? Surely Jesus will say more than, don't worry, be happy. But before I tell you what I think Jesus says, let me tell you a story about a poet. Last summer, I read an essay about the Russian poet Anna Akhmatov. I had never heard of Anna. She was a brave woman. She risked her own life to write politically subversive poetry during the brutal regime of the Russian dictator Stalin. Anna stood outside the prison in Leningrad for 17 months to get packages of food delivered into her son, also imprisoned for his politically subversive activities. She would stand out there in the bitter cold, hoping to just catch a glimpse of her son's face. And one day, while she was standing out there in the brutal cold, a woman recognized her as the politically subversive poet. Can you describe this? She was asked. Yes. 
And she went home and she wrote the poem called Requiem to memorialize this experience, this feeling, this terror of the horrific chapter in Russia's history. She would write various lines of the poem and she would give two or three lines to you and a stanza to you and another stanza to you and you would memorize it, commit it to memory and then burn the scrap of paper because if it was discovered in your possession, you too could be imprisoned. And so for her and for the people around her, for the people who lived in this time of extreme and intense anxiety, poetry was critically important. Poetry was not frivolous, it was necessary. It captured for them the reality of their lives. And in today's scripture lesson, Jesus looks out into the faces of his friends whom he knows are so hungry and so thirsty and so worried about how to raise their children in this time of anxiety. And he says to them words of poetry. Consider the lilies. Look at the birds. Jesus invites them into another realm, into a poetic universe. Why? Because this is critically important to their lives. He points out those birds there who never gather up food and store it in barns. He, he points to the robin over there on that branch and he says that robin never plants a seed, never waits for the seed to germinate. He points to this beautifully delicate white lily with the orange stamen coming up and he says even King Solomon who built palaces filled with the kind of gaudy, lavish opulence that the world had never seen before. Even Solomon didn't have the beauty of this simple lily that will fade in a day or two. Jesus invites them to pause and enter in to the mystery of now because it is not frivolous. It is necessary for their survival. It is critical for them to know that this God of goodness is among them Without it, they will not survive. What about you? What place on this earth exists? And when you go there, everything you worry about fades away. Is it a particular mountain peak in Colorado? You've seen it on a drive, you've committed it to memory. Is it a particular curve in a hike? in the mountain? Is it the pond at Shawnee Mission Park where you sometimes go and fish? Is it a particular place on a beach? Maybe in Charleston, maybe in Florida, maybe in California, but when your toes hit the sand and you hear the surf, everything that you were worried about in the previous breath has vanished. Maybe it's when Sarah sings a song in this room, or Payow or Matt plays a particular song on the organ or the piano, and your breath is taken away, and whatever you worried about when you walked in, it fades. To all of us who worry and fret, Jesus says, consider the lilies. Look at the birds, pay attention to the blade of grass, strive first for the kingdom of God, Rearrange your priorities on the busiest day of your life so that on that day you can breathe in the peace and the presence of the holy divine love. I don't know why we haven't figured this out. 
It's been more than 50 years now since Harvard professor and cardiologist Herbert Benson did that groundbreaking research on the value of meditation and prayer. Dr. Benson found that when you and I meditate and when we pray, our stress levels go down. Even our blood pressure and resting heart rates is reduced. We have scientifically hard data that tells us that considering the lilies and looking at the birds reduces our worries. We know intellectually that when we take an hour for worship on Sunday or 15 minutes of prayer before we go to work, that peace envelops us. We know that when we read an inspirational passage from a book, even a paragraph or two, that it reframes how we set our intention for the day. We know this, but we don't always strive first for God. We seem so distracted. I remember a few years ago, going to a class on prayer, and the teacher said that when a rocket leaves Earth and takes off and goes into space, that it uses 90% of its energy just to lift off the ground and the other 10% to make it all the way to the moon. But liftoff is the hard part, setting our intention and getting started. And in the yoga class that I do early in the morning, the teacher says, well, You've made it to the mat. And that's the hardest part of yoga, just getting to the mat. Now you can do the rest of it, she says. But we don't seem to be able to strive first for the realm of God. When our son was little, we would sit Connor down and read to him at night. And one of our favorite books was the book by Leo Leone called Frederick. I don't know if you read Frederick to your kids or to your grandkids, but Frederick was a mouse. He lived in a stone wall with his mice friends. As winter approached, the mice friends started scurrying around with busyness. The field mice worked round the clock to gather wheat and corn and straw so that they could have some nourishment to carry them through the bleak winter. They were looking ahead, but they were all frustrated with Frederick because he appeared not to worry about winter. He appeared not to work to prepare for the season of hardship that they all knew was on its way. What are you doing, Frederick? Oh, I'm working, he said. I'm gathering sunlight for the winter months that are so dark. I'm gathering colors for the grayness of winter that always comes. I'm gathering up words for the quiet of winter. Well, the winter comes, and they all eat the food that the field mice stored up, the corn and the grain and the straw, and then they turn and look at Frederick because they are all out of nourishment. And Frederick says, close your eyes and feel the warmth of the sunshine upon your bodies. And they feel the warmth enveloping them. And he says, close your eyes and picture those beautiful red poppies and the blue periwinkles. And they can see the field full of flowers. And then Frederick recites a poem to them using all the words that he had stored up and gathered for winter. 
Frederick, you see, he invites them into the joy of the present moment, the world of art and poetry and mystery, and it is more than enough. Today, we honor the ministry of Reverend Joe Walker. For the last decade, he has been the one that we turned to when we were worried. When cancer came, we called Joe. When dementia came, we called Joe. When the car accident came, we called Joe. When the divorce papers were served, we called Joe. And Joe was like Frederick. He brought sunshine and warmth. He brought flowers and colors. He brought words of scripture and prayer. Joe reminded us in the midst of the weariness and the worry and the fear that God adores us, treasures us, claims us. Joe, we are grateful for your presence, for the ways that you offered your life as an instrument of God's gentle peace and gigantic love in the midst of all of life's real worries. The New Testament scholar Tom Long says that God has the power to overthrow the power of anxiety. Sure, we're human beings and we will worry. But the truth, says Professor Long, is that nothing in this world can take away what God has already provided dignity and worth and the bold confidence that every single one of us is treasured by God. When my nephews Jared and Leighton were in elementary school, they moved from Nigeria to Los Angeles. They were missionary kids, both born in Africa, and so the United States was a rather foreign place to them. Jared was in the third grade and Leighton was in the first grade when their mom and dad settled into a new house in Los Angeles. And when the day came for them to go to school, which was just a day or so after they arrived here, their mom put them on the bus to go to school. At the end of that day, Jared and Leighton were placed on the wrong school bus to go home. But Los Angeles was a brand new place to them and they didn't really notice for a while that they weren't going anywhere near their home, but their mom noticed when they didn't get off the bus, and she was terrified. It was a mother's worst nightmare. This was long before cell phones, and even their landline had not yet been installed, and so she had to go to a neighbor's house and call the school, and no one answered, and the boys ended up a very long way from their home, and finally they noticed that all the other kids seemed to be getting off the bus, so maybe they would get off the bus too, and they stood on a street corner, and they found a home, and they went and knocked on the door of a total stranger and said, we're lost. Now, you would think that these two little boys would be pretty rattled, afraid, worried, sick, anxious. I would be a new city, a big city, these total strangers, and even the language wasn't all that familiar to them. But Jared, the older in third grade, took his first grade brother Leighton under his wing and waited until someone came and picked them up and drove them home. And when Jared tells this story, he just seems so chill 
so relaxed. He laughs about it, and I say, oh, but come on now, Jared, you had to be so worried. No, he says, I really wasn't. I knew that someone would come for me. He knew that someone was waiting for him to come home. <laughs>